Hello and welcome to another episode of the ABIP podcast. This is your host, Abhinav Agarwal, from the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell in New York. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the speaker alone and not necessarily those endorsed by the ABIP. So for today's episode, we are very excited to welcome Dr. Matt Indra from New York. Dr. Indra is an assistant professor of cardiovascular and thoracic surgery at the Lenox Hill Hospital at Northwell Health. In this very interesting two-part episode, we will cover some basics of thoracic surgery for pulmonologists and interventional pulmonologists, as well as provide a thoracic surgeon's perspective in the management of lung cancer, as well as pleural diseases. So Matt, welcome to the ABIP podcast. You know, we are so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Perfect. So, you know, before we dive into part one, where we discuss more about lung cancer management, do you have any conflicts of interest uh, for the purpose of this episode? I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. So, you know, Matt, I've always been fascinated uh, when I first came to the United States, you know, I came across the robotic uh, VAT surgery and, you know, coming from somewhere where we didn't have the robotic surgery, it always fascinated me as to a traditional VAT versus a robotic VAT. And as I've continued my journey, you know, through uh, pulmonary medicine, I've seen a practice pattern where there are some thoracic surgeons who do a regular VAT, and then there are some thoracic surgeons who do a robotic VAT. So what is the difference in, in, between the two of them? It's a great question. And uh, robotic-assisted uh, surgery has really become more popular recently. Um, the uh, practice uh, has changed a bit amongst uh, thoracic surgeons, and the uh, a number of operations being performed uh, through robotic-assisted approach has been increasing. Um, you know, in, in years before that, the transition from an open thoracotomy to a thoracoscopic approach um, similarly uh, increased. Um, basically, thoracoscopic surgery uh, is minimally invasive surgery for the chest. That stands for video-assisted thoracic surgery, meaning we use cameras and smaller instruments and smaller incisions to perform operations in the chest that would normally be done uh, historically with a posterolateral thoracotomy or a big incision. Um, the benefits of that surgery is that we don't use rib spreaders, which cause a lot of postoperative pain and we decrease the amount of incisions and the size of the incisions that we use. So we don't cut through um, the latissimus um, and the serratus, which can cause uh, a significant amount of post-operative pain for patients. When you do traditional VAT surgery, um, the camera that you use is a 10 millimeter, zero degree or 30 degree camera which allows you to see around the chest and see around the pearl cavity. But the instruments you use are straight stick instruments. Um, they do not have a wristed uh, joint at the end. So your uh, degrees of freedom and your range of motion with these instruments uh, to uh, perform your procedure uh, is limited. Robotic assisted VAT surgery. So basically it's a thoracoscopic operation and a minimally invasive operation, but the tool is different. The tool is the robot. The robot has four arms. One is used for the camera and three is used for surgical instruments, whether it's a retractor or a dissector or a grasper. And these instruments have eight degrees of freedom in their range of motion. 
So basically they act as one's own hand with a wrist and you have all the degrees of freedom of your own hand and your own wrist. So the benefit of robotic surgery is that you are almost performing open surgery with your hands and wrists with small incisions and less pain and less, um, less trauma to the patient. That is fascinating, you know, uh, you know, the, the advent of robotic surgery and you know, some of it is uh, slipping into our field of pulmonary and interventional pulmonary itself. So do you feel like it is more comfortable, you know, as somebody who does robotic surgery? And do you feel that it makes a difference? And in that accord, is there data out there that the outcomes are actually better with robotic VATS or we are still in the early phases where we don't really know if it makes a difference in terms of, you know, patient outcomes or complications when compared to the traditional uh, video-assisted thoracoscopy surgery? Yeah, I'll answer the first part of your question uh, first. And in terms of my own preference, um, I think the robotic-assisted platform is exceptional. And compared to uh, traditional thoracoscopic surgery, um, personally, just anecdotally, I, I think it is better. Uh, I think it's more comfortable for the surgeon. Uh, I think it allows the surgeon to uh, see better and actually perform a better dissection. And in terms of cancer, that translates into lymphadenectomy. It translates into um, dissection of the lymphatic tissue along the pulmonary artery. Um, and it uh, translates into, you know, better parenchymal um, margins or ch achieving uh, better parenchymal uh, margins. Um, and to answer your second question in terms of data, is one proven to be better than the other? You know, unfortunately, there are no prospective trials out there comparing bats and robotic-assisted, traditional bats and robotic-assisted uh, surgery. But in all the retrospective trials, um, they have shown that they are basically equivalent in terms of outcomes. Um, some have shown that lymph node dissection is uh, better with robotic surgery. Uh, some have shown that length of stay is better with robotic surgery. Some have shown that morbidity is better with robotic surgery. Uh, the cost is higher with robotic surgery, um, but the length of stay in the hospital is sometimes shorter. So, you know, there are no clear conclusions that can be made with the retrospective studies that are out right now, but um, it would be interesting to see what, you know, prospective studies would show comparing the two techniques. I agree. And I think, you know, that is uh, unfortunately hard to do, but uh, something that will, I think, guide a lot of uh, future research in terms of does one is one better versus the other. And of course, we can't forget the satisfaction of the operator and the ease of the, uh, you know, the operator, as we find out again in our field of pulmonary medicine, you know, it's easier for us to do robotic assisted procedures. Uh, and I'm sure that translates into the same for a thoracic surgeon as well. So jumping a little bit, you know, in terms of lung cancer, you mentioned uh, both lymphadenectomy or, you know, lung resection. So I always faced with that question, you know, especially when I was training and uh, as a pulmonologist, you know, when you see a nodule that looks to be a peripheral nodule, uh, you know, abutting the pleura, close to the pleura, it's small in size, we are not concerned about, you know, mediastinal involvement or hilar involvement. How do you decide between, you know, when the patient comes to see you and when you're talking to them, a wedge resection versus a segmentectomy versus a lobectomy? You know, can you shed more light on this uh, for our listeners? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, I think just as the technique and approach for lung cancer is changing over time, I think the 
extent of resection, especially recently. Um, you know, conversations have been had about what is going to be the new standard of care for a small periphery located uh, lung nodule. Um, you know, traditionally from the uh, lung cancer study group and um, Ginsburg, the gold standard, standard of care for lung cancer treatment in resectable lung cancer has been a anatomic lobectomy with a mediastinal lymph node dissection. Uh, outcomes in terms of survival were uh, equivalent, but um, compared to sublobar resection, uh, the uh, risk of uh, local recurrence was lower with a lobectomy. So throughout my entire training and for, you know, since the 90s, um, the uh, gold standard was lobectomy. Um, with uh, some of the new studies out right now, like the JCOG 0802 trial and uh, Dr. Altorki from Cornell's CALGB trial, um, the question is, is the new standard of care for peripherally located small lung nodules less than two centimeters is the new standard of care segmentectomy? And, um, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very interesting question because, um, um, you know, recently, I think people have, have uh, tried to, you know, spare parenchyma uh, of the lung when doing a lung resection. When I think about peripheral nodules, I think about the patient and I also think about the nodule. Is the nodule solid? Is it spiculated? Is the SUV uh, especially high? Um, or is it a ground glass nodule uh, that's, you know, one centimeter and not very hot on, on PET scan. Um, I think the latter, I think those are good uh, options for doing a sublobar resection. Um, when I think about the patient, I think about their functional status. I think about whether they have a single nodule or multifocal lung cancer. Uh, and I think about their pulmonary function. Um, and that really helps me determine who, uh, who might be a candidate for a sublobar resection and who might be a candidate for a lobectomy. So do you think in terms of, you know, sublobar resection, it is a more technically challenging procedure. And that is why, you know, there is, a, it's taken longer to adopt this kind of a surgery. Or do you think that people are still worried about, you know, the rate of recurrence postoperatively and therefore uh, there is going to be, it's going to take more studies to, you know, move towards a sublobar resection uh, and a more lung sparing approach. You know, I think, I think it's probably a little bit of both, honestly. I think, um, one, segmentectomy is more challenging than, uh, than a lobectomy. And that goes back to thoracoscopic versus robotic assisted. You know, with robotic assisted surgery, it is less difficult, but it is still a more complex, uh, more technically involved operation. Um, so, you know, one, I think that makes, that may uh, help make a decision for a surgeon. Um, and I think, you know, I, I just personally speaking, I think dogma and I think training and I think, uh, I guess you can call it tradition, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, affects, all you know, affects, um, may affect um, a decision to perform a lobectomy versus sublobar resection. You know, I think for, yeah, I think, I think for patients who are great candidates for surgery, who have excellent lung function, who are on the younger side, um, who, um, 
who have a peripheral, you know, maybe one to two centimeter solid nodule, you know, I think I would still talk to them about a lobectomy until, you know, things are really, um, until things are really, really clear in terms of uh, local recurrence and, and overall survival and disease-free survival. Right. So, you know, we need more long-term data that there is no recurrence in the latter period and these patients are followed longer. That makes sense. So exactly. then, you know, sometimes I've seen patients, you know, with, a, with really peripheral lesion, they'll just get a wedge. So, you know, do you always have to do a completion lobectomy if you're frozen as positive or, you know, based upon lung function, uh, are there times when you consider that, you know, a wedge to be uh, with curative intent? Yeah, I think, I think in that situation, it, uh, it's patient dependent. Um, and obviously surgeon uh, dependent and they've weighed all the, you know, tumor factors and, and patient factors to decide that, you know, a wedge resection is, is the operate or the resection of choice. You know, when you do a wedge resection for a, um, for a lung nodule, the size to margin ratio should be one-to-one -one at least. So if you have a one centimeter lesion, you should have one centimeter margins at least. Um, and you know, when I think about a wedge resection, I think about patients who cannot tolerate, um, either a, uh, segmentectomy or a lobectomy, you know, those are the patients who I'd perform a wedge resection on. Um, additionally, maybe if patients, if maybe if it's a redo chest or if it's multifocal lung cancer, I would perform a wedge resection. Um, but I think the key thing about performing a wedge resection is that the surgeon needs to perform a good lymph node dissection. Um, you know, with ground glass opacities, there's some debate about, um, you know, the risk of lymph node metastases, but I think in order to um, appropriately intraoperatively stage the patient, I think, you know, your hilar lymph nodes and your mediastinal lymph nodes should be uh, dissected or sampled, then you should get a good lymph node dissection if you're performing a wedge resection. And if you're trying to get away with a wedge resection, you know, especially based upon the pulmonary function status, does that change the approach in terms of adjuvant therapy? Or if you really got the one-to-one -one margin, then you still would follow them, uh, you know, clinically and radiographically? Um, you know, good question. In the NCCN guidelines, um, they talk about worrisome features for uh, indications for adjuvant therapy. And previously, wedge resection was considered a worrisome feature and a consideration for adjuvant therapy. I think if you're performing a wedge resection on a patient, or at least for me personally, that patient is probably a bit more frail, probably has a bit lower functional status, probably has worse lung function than other patients. So in terms of it, consideration of adjuvant therapy, I think that's a, you know, discussion to be had between uh, the surgeon, the patient, and the medical oncologist to see what the best, uh, to see what the best option is for that patient. Right. So you bring these patients to tumor board, you know, discuss them, risk benefit, you know, tolerance, functional status, and then make a joint decision. Oh, that makes sense. Cor correct. So switching gears a little bit in terms of mediastinal staging. So you talked about, you know, mediastinal lymph node dissection. And, you know, as a pulmonologist, I always think, oh, yeah, the surgeon can get to all of the lymph nodes and they can, you know, biopsy most of the areas. So tell me your perspective. Can you always get to, you know, all of the lymph nodes, the higher lymph nodes? What is a hard lymph node to get, you know, as a thoracic surgeon? And on that account, you know, when as an interventional pulmonologist, we, we do preoperative EBA, especially for, you know, patients with a central tumor or, you know, a larger than three centimeter tumor based upon the guidelines. 
Is it helpful for you to know if the patient has even as low as N1 disease? Does that change your surgical plan? Does that change your management approach? So in terms of lymph node staging um, intraoperatively, um, you know, first talking about the right chest, and then we'll talk about the left chest, you know, based on uh, ACS uh, Commission on Cancer recommendations, uh, during a lung resection, three N2 stations must be sampled and one N1 station must be sampled for any lung resection that's considered curative for cancer. Um, so, you know, that being said, whenever I do a right-sided operation, um, I look for station nine lymph nodes in the inferior pulmonary ligament, which uh, usually are, um, are there. Sometimes they are not. Uh, I look for station eight lymph nodes, which are periesophageal. And then I look in the subcarinal space uh, for station seven lymph nodes. And then I'll look in the uh, paratracheal region for station two and sometimes, uh, sorry, for station four and sometimes station two lymph nodes. So, you know, pretty routinely those lymph nodes and those stations are um, easy to uh, sample or dissect and get to from the right chest. Um, and in terms of hyalur lymph nodes, um, usually there are station 10 lymph nodes around the hilum. Um, around the uh, superior pulmonary vein and sitting between the superior and inferior pulmonary vein. Uh, additionally, you can find a station 10 lymph node around the uh, origin of the truncus uh, branch of the pulmonary artery. Um, and then once you are doing your uh, dissection, usually in the fissure around the uh, other branches uh, of the pulmonary artery to the other lobes, you can find station 11, sometimes station 12 lymph nodes. So in terms of being able to appropriately stage and uh, dissect out certain stations on the right side, I'd say it's fairly routine that um, you can sample multiple stations from the right chest. Um, alternatively, from the left chest, you know, these lymph node stations that we can sample or dissect are a bit different from the right. Uh, because of the location of the aortic arch, we cannot get to the paratracheal space. So we can't get to station four or station two, but we can get to station five and six in the aeropulmonary window. Uh, so those are uh, lymph nodes that we look for from the left side. We also look for station seven in the subcarinal space again, and we look for station eight and nine in the inferior pulmonary ligament and periesophageally. And just like on the right side, we can find those 10, 11, and 12 lymph nodes uh, from, the same, uh, from the same spaces um, around the hilum and uh, uh, along the uh, pulmonary artery and near the branches. Um, and I'm sorry, Abby, can you remind me of your second question? So, you know, what I was asking was in when, you know, when we do e-buses, we, there's some debate on should N1 lymph nodes be routinely sampled. And from a you know, patient who has either, you know, clinical N0 disease or there is no obvious involvement of N1 lymph nodes, does finding out that the patient may have uh, N1 lymph nodes that are positive change your surgical plan or alter your surgical plan? Yeah. Um... You know, I think those patients with N1 lymph nodes, as, as you mentioned, tumor board before, I think those patients are very important to present at your multidisciplinary tumor board because of, you know, new developments in uh, neoadjuvant treatment of lung cancer. Uh, recently, the Checkmate 816 trial was uh, published, uh, looking at the role of neoadjuvant chemotherapy and nivolumab for um, uh, stage uh, 
a one beta three a lung cancer receptable. Um, so, you know, neoadjuvant treatment for these patients with N1 disease is, is now an option and, and a pretty good option for some patients. Um, and again, that decision would be made, um, in tumor board and with the patient, uh, to discuss whether or not they want a neoadjuvant treatment. Otherwise with N1 lymph node positivity, um, you know, normally upfront surgery is offered. I think the most important thing though, is on a PET scan, if you have uh, positive hyalur lymph nodes that are avid, it's important to perform the EVUS to um, rule out N2 disease. I think that's the most important thing um, with that positive N1 lymph node on a PET scan. Right, because you know the surgical plan will change in terms of either neoadjuvant or not being a surgical candidate, depending upon those N2, you know, multi-station or single station or even N3 disease. So I think that highlights the importance of pro performing in patients who have a high suspicion or one of these uh, you know, features that are uh, discussed in the ACCP guidelines where we perform a preoperative EBUS. So I absolutely agree with that. So how often do you use something like a dye marking, you know, either CT guided or uh, bronchoscopic guided in terms of you know, helping with your surgical approach? And is there a role routinely or what kind of lesions are you looking for in terms of dye marking itself? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, in training um, with thoracoscopic surgery, um, we marked uh, nodules all the time. Um, and we used Technetium uh, 99 for, it's a radio tracer, and we used a camera probe in the operating room to mark the lesions, find the lesions, and resect the lesions. Um, you know, nowadays with, uh, you know, robotic bronchoscopy, you can use intraparenchymal uh, markings such as ICG, um, and even sometimes fiducial markers are placed. Um, and those, those can be used to uh, help localize a lesion. Um, in terms of um, frequency of using it, you know, I've used intraoperative marking only a handful of times in the past, you know, two, two and a half years. Um, because normally, uh, what I, in my own experience, uh, the lesions have been solid, peripheral, and they are palpable uh, in the operating room where they are, you know, we can find them grossly um, in the operating room. And I think that really determines whether or not um, I will pursue preoperative marking. If the nodule is a ground glass opacity uh, on the preoperative CT scan, um, I think it's important to mark those lesions because those lesions can be very hard to palpate in the operating room. And unless you're going to do an anatomic resection of that segment, I think, um, doing a wedge resection would be, would be difficult, um, because that lesion would be hard to find. So I think those lesions are very, uh, very amenable, uh, to dye marking or, or pre-surgical marking of any type. And I think it'd be very helpful for a resection for those lesions. You know, just staying on the topic, one last question is we always talk with my colleagues as to, you know, when we are trying to biopsy the lesion, we have to be absolutely accurate. But when it comes to dye marking, how accurate do you have to be? Because there is some issues with when you're injecting the dye, there may be some spillage. So how accurate or close to the lesion, especially for something like a ground glass lesion, do you have to be to, you know, appropriately and help you during the procedure rather than just have a procedure that didn't really help you? Yeah, I think um, 
I think when you're marking a lesion, I think the best place to mark it would be central from the visceral pleura. So uh, if the lesion is one centimeter from the visceral pleura, I think placing your mark either one centimeter or further from the visceral pleura is the most helpful because if you know that the mark is behind the lesion, then the surgeon knows if they get the mark, the lesion is within that sample of lung. Um, so I think when you're going to mark lesions, I think it is more important to mark central to the lesion rather than marking the lesion exactly, if that makes sense. Yeah, right. So you want to get the borders and that way you'll make sure that you get the lesion and still have some leeway uh, in terms of uh, getting. Uh, and so then you do a frozen and then go for the margins, I'm presuming, uh, just from the surgical perspective. Correct. Correct. If it's, you know, if it's benign, you're done. If it's a non-small cell lung cancer, you can proceed to um, you can proceed to definitive resection. That makes sense. And obviously, if it's a, if it's a secondary cancer, then you know, uh, gross margins are are all that are needed. Thank you. That's fascinating, and I've learned a lot about the thoracic surgery perspective. And you know, we talk all the time, so this has been great. So this concludes the first part of our two-part episode. Uh, thank you, Matt, again for taking our time, and I look forward to having you back for the second episode where we're going to actually discuss your perspective and a thoracic surgery perspective on the management of plural diseases, which again, you know, compared to lung cancer surgery, there tends to be a more overlap in terms of the practice patterns between, you know, pulmonary medicine and thoracic surgery. So I look forward to that. And again, thank you for taking our time for today's episode. Bobby, thanks so much for having me. This was, uh, this was great. I hope it was helpful. And uh, I look forward to the second part as well.